This is the part of our service where we come together before God and pray. I want to pray this morning for some other churches, uh, starting with, on this Easter Sunday morning, uh, a little church and a little community in East Africa called Boma in South Sudan. Uh, if you don't know, our church works in partnership with a ministry there where they've constructed a school in one of the poorest and most forgotten parts of East Africa and uh, teaching people to farm and giving them some hope, uh, but also really uh, having started a church and they've recently expressed the desire to find a pastor who can come and faithfully stay there and connect with and lead those people into the truth of the gospel. Seems an appropriate thing for to pray for on Easter Sunday. Also churches in our area and us, so would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of knowing that you did call our name and that led us out of a grave, that we have life because you have chosen to give it to us. And that is great news. We celebrate that this morning. And God, I think as we are here celebrating of brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, men and women uh, whom we have gotten to know, some of us in this church have been able to travel to Boma, South Sudan, clear on the other side of the world. And it is, in, to most of the world, a very forgotten place. But what a privilege to have been able to go, some of us physically and our whole church in terms of uh, giving financially and expressing our heart and our love to make life really happen there for people uh, without whom, without outside help would be left on their own. So Father, we pray for our friends in Boma, South Sudan this morning. I pray that this Easter morning would be a uh, great time of them hearing and understanding and responding to and experiencing the fact that you love them, you died for them, rose for the dead, and offer them new life. I pray that they would experience that love as they're able to educate their children and send them to school. I pray that they would experience that love as uh, they are taught to farm and given the power to um, sustain themselves and, and provide for their families. And Father God, this morning we pray especially for the little fledgling church in Boma and its need uh, as our partner organization, SEA Partners, has told us uh, for a long-term permanent shepherd, a pastor, to come and to care for those people. We pray that you would lay it on the heart of the right guy for that job to be called to that community, to love those people as you love them and to be able to teach them the truths of your word. I thank you for the privilege we have here in the States of being able to come to churches and hear the Bible taught well. We pray that our friends in Boma would experience the same thing and find eternal life in Christ even as they find physical life through sustenance and food to get through another day. So bless them this morning. Father, I pray that you would also bless churches all over the Portland area from all denominations. As we gather on Easter Sunday to open the Bible and read it, I pray that it would be read clearly, that it would be heard accurately and understood, and that, Father God, through the life-changing message that you have put in this book, you would change hearts all over the Portland area this morning. We pray that thousands of people would come to faith in Christ and would find new life because you rose from the dead. So we pray that you do that work in our city this morning for our good and your glory. And lastly, Father, I I pray for us as a church here at Harvest. Uh, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that you would change lives today, that this would not just be a, a religious gathering or a formal church service, but that far more than that, there would be life and joy expressed and experienced here because of the truths that you teach us in the Bible. I pray that you would give each one of us, wherever we're at, we've all come in here from different places. We all have different backgrounds with God and with church and with the Bible and with our understanding of who you are. We've all experienced different things these past week, this past month. We're all carrying different stuff. Father, you've brought us all here. And I pray that every man and woman in this room would be able to come and to see a clear and accurate glimpse of who you are, the great power of your death and resurrection to change life, and the great love that you have for each and every individual here. 
Father, I'm not fit to express that as a person, but you have expressed it clearly in the Bible. And so I pray that you would express it this morning and that you would change our hearts. We invite your presence here, Spirit of God, to transform us, make us more like you, and give us life because you died to give it to us. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's precious name, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us musically. Uh, They will be back uh, a little bit later in our service as we will close out our service with song. Right now, we want to engage in a little bit of a different kind of worship, and that is the worship of not um, speaking to God or singing to God, but actually hearing from Him. Uh, Church services are a delightful two-way street of communication between God and His people, and this is where we hear from Him by opening up the Bible and seeing what he has given to us. This morning, of course, being Easter Sunday, we are celebrating the greatest day on the calendar from the perspective of the Bible. And that is the weekend that we celebrate and commemorate the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is the central message of the entire Bible. It all boils down to this. Uh, It's a pretty thick book. There's a lot of stuff in it, but it really does all have a cohesive message and it all boils down to this. We began our look at this weekend on Friday night during our Good Friday service right here in this room. Uh, It was an appropriately dark and somber reflection on the death of Jesus Christ, Um, how severe and harsh and painful that death was, but we also left sort of in awe of what that death accomplished for us, why Jesus died in the forgiveness of sins. And we left with the hope that that was not the end of the story. Well, it's not. And this morning we get to finish the story. I want to begin by just letting the Bible walk us through the narrative of the events of what took place that first Easter Sunday morning. Reading um, sections of the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, the Bible tells us, on the first day of the week, that would have been their Sunday, at early dawn, they, referring to several of the women who had followed Jesus, went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the rest of the disciples that followed Jesus. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they didn't believe it. People don't rise from the dead. It wasn't any more common in the first century than it is in the 21st. It was too good to believe. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping, he looked in and saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Later that night, they were all gathered together, and dropping down to verse 36, the story continues. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, I would say so. (laughs) And they thought that they saw a spirit. They literally thought they were looking at a ghost. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, 
with the nail holes from his crucifixion. He says, uh, see that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And I love this. While they still disbelieved for joy, (laughs) it just seems too good to be true. And they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. I'm real, I'm here, I'm physical, I'm alive. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, so that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, You yourselves are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about him in a moment. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, a village not far away from Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Quite a remarkable series of events, the very first Easter Sunday morning. The resurrection of Jesus, though, is far more than just an amazing event, although it certainly is that. The joy that the disciples returned to Jerusalem with following that first Easter wasn't just the start of a celebration of a past event, no matter how amazing that event was. I mean, Jesus rising from the dead was certainly supernatural. That was a miracle. I didn't see things like that. That was amazing. But it was far more than just something that had happened in the past. It ended up launching a movement that has transcended cultural and language barriers, spread to every continent of the globe, endured for 2,000 years, and still counting, and has radically reshaped the face of human history. The resurrection of Jesus has had such far-reaching and long-lasting impact because it didn't just affect Jesus back then. It's not something that just happened to him back then, but it actually carries impacts for us even still today. The Bible puts it this way, the New Testament book of Romans chapter 6 verse 4, it says, as Christians, we were buried with Jesus in baptism, and in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so you see what the Bible is doing. It not only tells us what happened to Jesus the day he rose from the dead, but it then goes on from there and says that story isn't just something that happened to him. It actually impacts you and I today. We have the opportunity to experience something of a death like his where the old me is crucified along with Jesus and we are risen to new life just as he was literally and physically raised from the dead. You and I today, right now in Christ, have the opportunity to experience a new life just as dramatic and powerful as his physical resurrection from death itself. This isn't just a story of what happened to Jesus. This is for you and me. This is for all people and all languages and all places, both genders, rich, poor, the world over, all times. This is God 
beckoning us home. There's new life in Christ. So the question becomes, what does that mean? What does new life look like since it is such a prominent feature of the Bible's message? Our main text this morning that we're going to look at is a short um, paragraph, actually just part of a paragraph, in the New Testament book of Titus. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you're uh, invited to borrow the one that's in the rack in the pew in front of you. If you're using that one, we'll be on page 845, Titus chapter 3. And this morning we're reading verses 3 through 7. This short passage, this, this small handful of verses, gives us a lot of insight into what the Bible means when it says you and I can experience new life. Like realistically and experientially, what does that mean? Well, we get told in this passage, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Let me just read it through briefly, and then we're going to back up and just notice a couple things about new life in Christ. Verse 3 of Titus chapter 3 says, um, again, referring to Christians, we were ourselves once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, our own urges and impulses really kind of defined our lifestyle. We were passing our days in things like malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It doesn't mean that all of these things were equally true of every person, but this is a pretty good description of the human race of life when we're living for self rather than living for God. That's one way that life can be lived. Verse 4, but, here's the other way, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we did enough good things, in other words, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word for us. And there are at least four things we learn about what new life means. This is the Bible's message for all of us today, the new life that we can experience. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it means at least four things. First of all, it means regeneration or renewal. Both words are used. They mean essentially the same thing. Uh, Back in verse 5, it says, He saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, according to His own mercy, but then notice what it says. It saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal. The Bible says when you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ, something radically different starts to change deep down at the core of of your being. It can be sort of likened to to a washing, but not just the outside, a, a washing of the inside of a person down to the very core of his or her heart and what makes us tick and what makes us who we are. It's described as renewal, regeneration. It's like you're created all over again. Another place in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, says that if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creature, a new creation. It's like you're, you're remade into a totally new kind of person. The old person has passed away, it says, and the new has now come. There's this sharp distinction between who I am at the core of my being because God changes me. New life means a change deep down inside. It's as if we haven't been fully alive 
until we've actually experienced life as only Christ can give it. That's a life that's, that's not centered on myself, where my own self isn't the center of my universe and kind of everything in my life orbits me and what I'm doing and, and what I'm all about, but rather it's a life that is now oriented toward God and who he is. And I experience deeper joy at seeing his beauty rather than just myself. That means that the sins that so often gain a foothold in our lives, the things that we can never fully eradicate on our own, that's a state that the Bible refers to as being spiritually dead. We are slaves, the Bible says, to those sins. That's, that's our bent, that's our human nature. Because our hearts, as it were, are out of joint. Sort of think of it like a dislocated shoulder or something. Like there's a joint that's supposed to work properly and it's just, it's popped out. It's not working right. And it's, and it's painful and you have to compensate for it. It's as if our hearts, as people which are designed to love and honor and worship God and experience the joy of his perfection, so we're all oriented toward him. But what sin makes us do is it reorients us instead of up toward God, it reorients us down toward myself. Now my life is about me. It's like I'm, I'm hobbled and I'm bent over. My life is about me and I'm doing my best to make my life work. But you know, if you walk around bent over long enough, it gets really painful. You have to start compensating and, and it's not working right because that's not how I was designed to function. God says when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, God puts the joint back into place. Sometimes that can be a short-term traumatic experience, but it's like he straightens us up again and suddenly, ah, I'm free to stand. I'm free to see him for who he is. God sets our dislocated heart straightening it so that it's once again oriented toward him. And what happens is then this starts to break the stranglehold of sin that creeps into every one of our lives. It happens differently for every person, but we all share in common what the Bible calls sin, our willingness to turn our back on God and live for ourselves. We can't completely break free from that on our own, but when God straightens our hearts, he puts the heart back in joint, it breaks the stranglehold. Now, that reorientation of my whole perspective is a transformation that won't be fully completed until I get to heaven. But it is real, and it happens now, and it starts to manifest itself in outward behaviors that become observable in the life of a Christian who is being changed. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, the book of Colossians, it describes the difference this way. Let me just read this passage for us, and then we'll be back to our main passage here in chapter 3. It describes what a life is often like when I'm bent over double living for myself and then it contrasts that with a life when I'm straightened up, oriented toward him. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, um, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. That's the kind of dif uh, the difference. There's an earthly life and a heavenly life. That's the language used in this part of the Bible. It's the same idea. And then it gives us some examples of that. What's an earthly life? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's on account of these things, the Bible says, that the wrath of God is coming. These are sins. And these things, too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them all aside. Things like anger, the list goes on, wrath, malice, slander, talking bad about people, obscene talk. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Do you see that, that same language of a whole new life? 
There's an old me that Jesus has done away with, and so I can leave it beside. There's a whole new me, and then he goes on and describes what that new me is like. It's constantly being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says, put on then as God's chosen people, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, and be thankful. Do you see the descriptions the Bible is talking about here? There's two very different ways to live. And the resurrection of Jesus, it says, was not just new life for him. It opens up the possibility of new life for you and I. New life means a different mode of life, a different way of living, of existing in this world that some of us may not even be aware is actually real. But the Bible insists it is. It's a new kind of life, a new quality of life. And the first thing we learn about it is that it means renewal reoriented at the core of my being toward God to experience his joys. Secondly, it means not just renewal, but it also means companionship. It means companionship with God himself. Back in our passage here in Titus chapter 3, it goes on. It says not only did he um, save us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's God's Holy Spirit, and then look what it says about God's Spirit himself, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Bible says that God actually takes his own spirit and pours it into your life and my life when I repent of my sins and I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior. God starts doing stuff to us, and one of the things he does is he moves into our lives. The, the imagery is of water being poured out. It says he poured, it, poured him out on us richly. It's sort of like, you know, God not just saying like, okay, I've got all this, this goodness. It's sort of pictured like, I don't know, like water in a big 55-gallon drum or something, and, and you're all dying of thirst, and that goodness is me and who I am. And God says, I'll be nice enough to give you a little teaspoon. Hold out your tongue. I'll give you a little drop. And you ought to be grateful I just gave you that much. It says he poured out his spirit upon us richly. He's like, sit down and hold on. And he kicks over the drum and just douses you with everything he is. There's nothing of God himself that he holds back from his children. He says he pours his spirit richly into our lives. Practically, that means I'm never alone in the fight. That's what new life means. I'm never alone in the fight. A significant part of the Old Testament is designed to tell us that no matter how hard we try or how strongly we, we may want to, human beings simply cannot will our way into keeping God's standards perfectly. The human heart is just too sinful. Some people may be better than others, but nobody's perfect. We just can't manage to do it. And God makes it clear that if we're going to live rightly, we're going to need a new heart. That internal transformation that happens at the core of our being, we talked about just a moment ago. Well, the Bible goes on and tells us a little bit more about that. God's Spirit Himself moves into our lives to walk with us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, a passage of Scripture we looked at here at Harvest just a couple of weeks ago, the Bible says that God is at work within the life of a Christian, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
very simply what that means is that God moves into the life of a Christian and causes me to even want to do the right thing all the time. Because truthfully, I don't want to do the right thing all the time. I don't know about you. God actually helps me want to do the right thing all the time, but then he also gives me the power to actually do it. In other words, God is in it with me every step of the way, whatever it is. That's new life, when God himself is walking alongside you. This means that God is not like some, you know, cosmic uh, test proctor, you know, walking around the tables and with his clipboard and looking for demerits that he can put on your name. You know, it's like we're, we're desperately running around in life trying to do the right thing. How many plates can I keep spinning? Whoop, this one's about to fall. Let me go over here and spin this one. Whoop, that one's, and then I gotta run over here. Whoop, because there's some over here and they need to be spun too. And like God's just sitting there going, wait for it. Wait for it. Whoop, there it is. Fell, crash, you blew it. You made a bad choice, you sinned. Black mark by your name. What's wrong with you? Like that's, God is just this overlord judging us. The Bible says, that's actually not how this works. God pours out his spirit on us richly. That means he's coming alongside in the long journey. He moves into my life. It's as if he grabs my arm, tired arm, puts it over his shoulders, puts his other arm underneath mine, and he says, hey, come on, let's go. I'm bearing the load. I'm walking with you. Every difficult, painful, lonely, grieving step of the way. This means we're not alone. It means my alcoholism is not something I have to beat on my own for God and clean myself up and then come to him and hopefully he'll accept me. It's not how the Bible works. It means that my pornography addiction that I keep secret, or at least I hope it's still secret from the people around me, is not something that I'm left on my own to conquer and, and clean myself up and then come to God before he'll He'll accept me. He's just waiting there with the clipboard to say, oh, you messed up, another black mark. It means that my envy of other people's cars and vacations, my endless love of and relentless pursuit of money, my propensity to lie to cover up my sinful choices, the list could go on and on and on. These are not things that God just leaves us on our own to beat through sheer willpower and determination. God doesn't just tell us to visualize a better future and then reach for it. Actually, the way the Bible paints the picture, it's a lot more like God helping us to envision his perfect future, and then he moves right in with us and says, I'm going to help you attain it, because you can't get there on your own. It's companionship. God is with us every step of the way. So new life means a total reorientation of who I am at the core of my being toward God, Secondly, it means that I'm never alone. I live a life no matter what the ups are or what the downs are. God is with me every step of the way. It's a totally different way to live. Thirdly, it also means that I'm forgiven. That I'm forgiven. The more um, common word in the New Testament for that is justified. That's the word we find here in our passage, verse 6. Uh, sorry, verse 7. After having said he poured out the Holy Spirit on us, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, it says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've been justified by his grace. In more plain English, that really means forgiven. It means forgiven. It means that when God looks at my life, he doesn't just see my sins and my failures. If I'm a Christian, 
what he sees is Christ's sacrifice in my place. There's a beautiful divine exchange that takes place between somebody who repents of their sins and embraces Jesus as their Savior and Jesus himself. Jesus takes something from us and he gives something to us. The Bible's way of describing this, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, is that God made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now again, that just simply means that there's an exchange that takes place. Jesus had no sin himself, but he died a sinner's death on the cross as if he was a sinner, even though he wasn't. So why did he do that? Well, the Bible says it's very clear, because he was paying my price. He was paying for my sin. He was paying for your sin. So that's the first half of the exchange. He essentially takes our sin on himself as if it was his, even though it wasn't, and he pays for it so that we don't have to. But then there's another half of the exchange. He also gives us something. He gives us his righteousness, which is the Bible's way of saying somebody who lives without sin, somebody who's perfectly holy. He says, here, let me take your sin, and I'm going to give you my sinlessness as if it was ours, even though it's not. It's his, but it's ours. And so what this means is that when I embrace the salvation that is in Christ, his death on the cross pays the penalty for my sins, and he now gives me his righteousness. So when God looks at me, he sees somebody who is justified, somebody who's forgiven, somebody who is right in God's eyes, even though I'm a sinner. The Bible says this so beautifully in one other passage I'll read to you just briefly, a couple verses from Colossians chapter uh, 2. It says, you who were once dead in your trespasses, meaning your sins, God made alive together with Jesus. There's that resurrection, new life language again. It's all throughout the Bible. He made us alive together with Jesus. Listen to this. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see what the Bible's saying? My sin, my debt, my guilt before God was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid for it and it's now gone if I will embrace him as my Savior. That means I can stand before God without shame. No shame before the God whose eyes are penetrating. They see everything. He can never be fooled. Nothing can ever be covered up. He knows it all. And I stand before him with every deep, dark secret of my life totally exposed to the God who knows it all. And I can have absolutely no shame. That's a different quality of life. Acts chapter 13, the Bible says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, referring to Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could never be freed by the law of Moses. That's a first century way of saying basically legalistic religion. Can you perform enough and do enough of the right things to get God to accept you? It's back to that spinning plates kind of thing, right? The law of Moses is all the laws in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, you know? So don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, 
don't commit sexual immorality, don't murder, you know, don't be a bad person, be a good person, and that's going to mean you got to do all these things, you got to not do those things, spin this plate, spin that plate, don't forget that plate, and while you're over here, don't forget all the other plates over here, because they're about to fall, so do that, and do that, and do that, and you work so hard to try to get it all right, and it's exhausting, because you're never quite sure you didn't miss one somewhere. Was that a little tinkle of broken china I just heard? Yeah. Maybe I did 10 things right in my life today for God, but I just messed up there. I sinned. And you know what? Even if I managed to get through a day where I look back and I go, as far as I can tell, I kept every commandment God ever gave me today. I could have been real ugly to that person, and I wasn't. I was nice. Um, I could have been real envious of that person, as I wa- and I wasn't. I was content. I, I did all, everywhere I could see that I could have sinned, I didn't. I had a great day. Well, guess what? There's always tomorrow. And you've got to spin the plates again and again and again. It is utterly exhausting. It's like running all out on a treadmill where you've got the sweat just pouring off of your brow, and you look down after an hour of throwing yourself at it, and you haven't moved an inch because every day is a new opportunity to mess up. That's why the Bible says you could never be set free if you follow religious laws. Oh no, the kind of life that Jesus Christ offers us is a totally different quality of life, a kind of life. It's a totally different way to live in which I can know that I am justified before God completely without shame even though I am a sinner because Christ paid for my sin done. All the vistas of freedom and joy that opens up for a person. It's a whole new way to live, friends. So new life means that I am set right in my heart, the reorientation of my life away from self and toward God. Secondly, it means that God is with me. I'm not alone in the fight. Thirdly, it means that I'm justified. There's no shame before God. And there's one more thing to notice about the new life we have in Christ in this passage. New life also means that I have great hope that no matter where I am in life, my best days are yet to come. This passage we're reading in Titus ends in verse 7, saying that, so being justified by his grace, we just talked about that, we now might become heirs, that is, we inherit something, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hope is a strong word in the Bible. It gets used pretty frequently, especially in the New Testament. And there's two different ways to think about the word hope. We use it both ways in modern American English. One is when I'm not sure something's going to happen, but I want it to, you know. Like when I fill out my NCAA tournament bracket and I say, I hope my bracket doesn't become a dumpster fire by the second round like it did last year. And then Virginia loses in the first round, which has never happened in history. And there it goes up in flames, you know. I hope... My team's going to win the championship. I hope I have enough money to buy a new car next year. You know, but these are things that we want to happen, but we're not sure they're going to happen. That's one way of thinking about hope. But that's not what the Bible means. The Bible has a totally different way of talking about hope. Hope is the settled conviction that I know good things are yet to come. It's like the hope a child feels on Christmas Eve when they can't get to sleep because they know there's going to be presents under the tree tomorrow and they've been anticipating it, right? It's not like, I think there might be presents. I don't know, maybe not. They're like, I'm looking forward to what I know is coming. It's the kind of hope that happens when you plan a great vacation and you're waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it and then it's finally here. You know it's coming and so you're anticipating it. 
The Bible says one of the qualities of the new life you can have in Jesus is that you live your life in a joyful anticipation that the best is yet to come, no matter what is happening in life right now. One of my personal favorite parts of the Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just read these couple verses to us, 16 to 18. It says, because of who Jesus is, we don't lose heart. Though the outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. In other words, life is like really hard sometimes. We, we deal with all kinds of pain and grief and struggle. That doesn't just go away when I give my life to Jesus. On the outside, we're getting older, we're getting sicker. We, we, life is hard, but even though that's true, on the inside, there is this new life that keeps getting renewed day by day with this anticipation. What's the anticipation? It goes on. For this light and momentary affliction, whatever the pains and difficulties of life are, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that cannot even be compared to the pains. As we look not to the things that are seen, that is the circumstances of my life, but we look to the things that are unseen, my eternal life in heaven, because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. The things that are unseen are eternal. They will never go away. Or as C.S. Lewis said so artfully, he's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, and in the last book of that series, he described looking forward to heaven as a life in which, you know, this life, it's the real story, and this life has just been the cover and the title page. The real story is about to begin, and it's a story that goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If Christ has forgiven your sins, that's your destiny. That's where you're headed. So whether things are going pretty well in life for you right now, and you hope they will continue to, but you're never sure, or whether life has been just awful or anywhere in between, I have the confidence of knowing that good or bad, my best days are yet to come. This also means, by the way, that the pressure of having to have it all now is greatly relieved because this life is not my one and only shot for happiness. Now, if I'm not really sure there's anything after this life, then I gotta make the most of this life that I can and that puts a lot of pressure on us. And that pressure gets relieved when I realize that the best is yet to come. After all, who has a midlife crisis when they're seven? Right? I mean, it, it doesn't happen. You're just getting started. Your whole life is ahead of you. We have midlife crises in midlife. That's why we call them what we call them. If I've lived long enough that I realize, man, I, I may still have some living yet to do, but I had hoped to be in a very different place right now than where I'm at. I didn't envision my life working out this way, and I don't see how it's going to get better, and that produces a tremendous angst for us, and that's totally understandable, and yet it is greatly accentuated if I think this life is all there is. But there's great peace in knowing that this life is not my one and only shot at happiness, especially when things haven't gone according to plan. You have a troubled marriage, maybe a failed marriage. Most of us don't go, into the, go to the altar to say, I do, thinking that it's not going to work out, but often it's pretty painful. Maybe you have a chronic 
or severe disease, or maybe you've had some kind of major accident that's physically impaired you to the place where life just doesn't look the way that you had hoped it would look at some point. Or maybe there's failed career or family goals. I mean, it can be any one of a hundredth of things. But we all know what it's like to have life let us down and not meet up with our greatest aspirations. Well, new life in Christ means that the pains and disappointments of this life are not my destiny. I get to live a life where I no longer have to have it work out now or it's lost. The bad things of this life do not define me. You know, it means that at my memorial service someday when I die and people are remembering me and what my life was like, the labels that they will put on me don't have to be things like cancer victim. Like that defines me. That's, that's who and what I am. Or angry. Or alcoholic or divorced, or single. All of these kinds of things don't have to be the label at my memorial service. They're not, they're not the sum total of what my life amounted to. Rather, they become blips on the radar. Brief periods of shadow that we walk through on our way to a deeply satisfying eternal life with God forever. That's what the Bible means when it says we inherit the hope of eternal life. And that's a completely different mode of living. It's a different way to live. It is very real. It is being experienced in large measure by people all around you right now in this room. And it all comes because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His new life, the Bible says, opens up the opportunity for us to experience new life. And that new life means at least these four things reorienting the core of who I am away from myself and toward God, never being alone in the fight, having all guilt and shame before God erased, and the freedom of knowing that my best is yet to come. All of this is because Jesus died and rose again. As we draw this to a conclusion, I'd like to ask us to reflect a moment, just yourself, privately, in your own thoughts. How does this kind of life that the Bible is describing compare with the life that you are experiencing right now? And that you maybe walked through these doors into this room carrying. Do you find yourself, like pretty much everybody, more naturally oriented to yourself or genuinely delighted to worship and honor God and experience the greater joys of his presence? Do you find yourself feeling that success in life is up to you and you either make it happen or you failed. And that God, if he's there at all, is merely the judge and the jury. Or do you sense his close companionship and his arms around you carrying you through everything? Do you tend to experience the frustration and futility that comes from trying to spin all of life's plates perfectly? and tempted to redefine success down to an attainable level, because you know what, if you only drop one plate per day, maybe that's pretty good. At least I hope it's good enough, because I can't do any better than that. Or do you feel the freedom of having absolutely no shame before God who knows everything? Or maybe you can relate to the feeling that a big part of the life you hoped for has already passed you by. Friends, Easter means that a totally new kind of life is available to anyone who repents of their sin 
That just means we agree with God that I am a sinner and that's wrong and I need to turn away from that and turn toward him and ask for his forgiveness, beg him for his forgiveness for my sins just out of his mercy and acknowledge that he is God and king and seek to live for him. When that happens, God starts doing stuff. That's not just a passive transaction. He gets active. He pours his spirit into us. He begins reorienting who we are. He brings a hope that puts all the pains of life in context. It doesn't always mean he takes them all away. If only he did, he will someday. But even now, it means that we have a hope and a future that creates a qualitatively different kind of life. The Bible simply calls it new life. God is beckoning you home. If you've never made a decision to acknowledge your sin verbally before God, to pray to him and repent of your sin and embrace him as your Lord and Savior, or if you're not even 100% sure what all that means, I would like to ask you to not let today pass by without exploring what that means. Uh, Maybe you know one of the members of this church who's experiencing new life in Christ. Ask him what that means for them. Ask him what it means to be a Christian. That can sometimes be a really awkward conversation for people, but you know one thing I find in talking to people is that everybody is interested in spiritual things. Just about everybody is. And so there's no need for it to be awkward or weird. Nobody wants to try to get you to change your mind. We simply want to help you understand what offer God is making to you to come home and to experience new life. So talk to a friend or a family member. If you'd like to talk to one of our pastors or church leaders, we'd be delighted to talk with you about that. You can come ask me about that after the worship service and get together for coffee sometime. I'd love it. Or you can fill out that connection card in the rack in the pew in front of you. Drop it off at our welcome center in the atrium. We'll connect with you this week, however you want to do it. We want you to know what it means to experience life with Christ. Maybe you feel like I've, been, I've done church before. I've gone to camps. I prayed a prayer. Nothing happened. Talk with somebody about that. What does it really mean to find life in Christ? And friends, if you have already given your lives to Jesus and following him, Let me encourage us to live in the reality of a Godward life this Easter. His presence in every day. His freedom, giving you freedom from guilt and shame. And his hope that real life hasn't even begun yet. We have so much to celebrate because our Savior rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And that has been reverberating around the world for two millennia, and it is still reverberating right in this room. We're going to pray right now, and then I want to ask the worship team to come up. In fact, why don't you guys come back up right now? They're going to lead us in song as we celebrate the resurrection and the life of Christ and go out if you're singing his praises. I pray you'll experience that too. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the incredible good news of Easter. Not just, Jesus, that you had died and you rose again, as miraculous and amazing as that is. It's supernatural it's pretty incredible in its own right and yet by itself that's just good news for you not for us and yet you insist over and over and over again in the bible that oh no this is very much good news for every man and woman who has ever lived and breathed so jesus i pray that you would flood the hearts and minds of people today convince us of your truth and your beauty where there are frustrations or insecurities or inhibitions, I pray that you would surround people with your love and give us the freedom to open ourselves up to ask you who you are and how we can have eternal life. Change our lives today. Help us to live more in the reality of who you are for our good and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.